scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Mark, the first chapter, commence in verse 14 and culminate in verse 34. And it reads, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and with the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as one of the teachers of law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they each asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of your announcement uh, sheet or uh, bulletin, you'll find an order of worship, and to the, to the right of that order of worship, you'll find uh, an outline of the, the message that we're going to, of the text that we're going to look at this morning. I'd invite you to pull that out as uh, we jump into this text that, uh, that Michael just read for us. Uh, one of the game shows that's been around, it seems like, a hundred years, is the game show Family Feud. It started with a guy by the name of Richard Dawson. Latest version has a, a host by the name of Steve Harvey. Back in 2012, there was an episode where they asked a specific question. And you know how the game show works. They, they uh, get random uh, groups of 100 people, ask them questions, they come up with the top answers, and then contestants are supposed to figure out what those top answers are. Well, on this particular question, they took 100 people and they asked the question, when someone mentions the king, to whom is he or she referring? Now, the answers were pretty interesting. 81 people out of that 100 said, it's Elvis, the king. There were three that said, Martin Luther King Jr. And there were two that said, the Burger King. Now, out of that 100, there were seven people that when they heard the term, the king, they thought of God or they thought of the Messiah, Jesus. 
Scripture would recognize the truth in, those, in the, the, uh, the, the, the response of those seven people. Revelation chapter 17 verse 14 says, The Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and what? King of kings. Say that last verse, part of that verse with me. The Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today and we're reminded, especially on this first day of the week, that we are not our own, that we belong to you and we belong to your Son, the Christ, who is our King. And we pray, Father, that as we, we meditate and study on these words this morning and we contemplate that the depth of meaning in the word King of Kings that we will be transformed, Father, in our obedience and the likeness that we attain to the Christ. And to this end, Father, we pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all the church said. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, you find the first public words of Jesus. And the first public words of Jesus are these. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, literally, repent and believe the gospel. Now, the kingdom has come because Jesus is here. The king is here. And the time has come is a very special phrase because, uh, you know, for those of us uh, that uh, understand the, the differences in some of the, the Greek terminology, there are two words for time. One is chronos, the other is kairos. Chronos is chronological time. It's chronicles. And then the other word, kairos, means significant. It's, it's, it's a big event. It's not everyday happenings. Uh, a kairos event is a, an, an event, a day that shifts history. Uh, an example of that is when Jesus is being as a, an infant, when he's being dedicated at the temple. And there's this old fellow by the name of Simeon who is there. And when he sees Jesus, there's just something about him that draws him to Jesus. He takes Jesus into his arms and we're told by... Uh, uh, by the gospel writer, that this Simeon is a fellow that has been looking for the consolation of Israel. And when he sees Jesus, he just knows that this is what he's been looking for all his life. And he says, now your servant God can die in peace because I've seen your salvation. That's what's happening when Jesus says, the time has come. Now, interestingly enough, the term kingdom of God does not appear in the Old Testament as such. But the idea of the kingdom of God is all over the place. Now, three chapters that we're always referencing is Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And in that, those chapters, we have the, the story of creation. God is in control. Everything is working. God's power is, is, is working uh, throughout all of creation. And creation's perfect. There's no such thing as crime or disease or injustice or any of these kinds of things in the world. But in the end, and that's chapter 3... All of that ended in Genesis chapter 3 when humans decided to do it for themselves and that's when the world became a mess. Now if you know me, you know I drive a Ford truck. Ford trucks are cool and I've driven them all my life. I've never owned anything but a Ford truck. And a Ford truck is great. And a Ford truck works perfectly except when you put a 7-year-old behind the steering wheel. And when that happens, everything and everyone goes into danger mode at that point. Now, that's what human beings are. Human beings are 
uh, when they decided to do it themselves, when they decided to stand in the place of God, they became the seven-year-olds who don't know how to steer and they can't quite reach the brakes of the truck. In Isaiah chapter 40, in recognizing just how messed up the world has become, God, Isaiah says, will come to straighten out the mess that the world is in And this is precisely the text, Isaiah chapter 40, that John the Baptist preaches in getting everybody ready to recognize the Messiah. See if these words sound familiar to you from Mark's gospel. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. Now, a lot of people look at that and they go, what in the world does that have to do with a king that is coming? That's all about geography and topography. Well, in the ancient world, when the king came, kings did not want to go uphill and exert a lot of energy and and sweat, nor when they were going down that hill or that mountain into a valley, did they want to stumble over a rock. Kings traveled on straight, level, plain ground. There are no curves in the road. It's straight because that represents their power. Nothing gets in their way. Everything else gets moved in order to make way for them. And that's what Isaiah is saying and John saying after him, this is what's going to happen right now. Get ready to see the king. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, that, that prophet says that God will cleanse the people and it's going to be done by a descendant of David. And then... After John the Baptist is put in prison, this descendant of David, born in the city of David, Bethlehem, this Jesus goes into Galilee preaching that the kingdom of God is near. What does it mean for him to be the king? It means four things. The king who calls, he's a king who heals, he's a king who vanquishes all the enemies, and he's a king who saves. Let's start with the king who calls. Back in 1999, I made my first trip to Israel, and we were up in the northern part of, of, of the country. We were up in Galilee. In fact, we were on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was off to the west. The Arbel Cliffs were off to the east. And as we're standing up there on that sort of northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, we read this text from Mark chapter 1. And in that text, it says that Jesus is on his way to Capernaum from Nazareth, and along the way, he is walking along the Sea of Galilee. We read the text. And there he called Peter and Andrew, who dropped their nets, who were fishing, dropped their nets, and immediately they follow him. And then going a little further, he sees those sons of Zebedee, John and James, and they're preparing their nets or mending their nets, and he calls them, and he says, follow me. And immediately they leave their father Zebedee in the boat, the nets, and they get out into the water and they follow Jesus into Capernaum. Our guide told us that, you know, in this cove that we're standing in front of is the cove that for as long as anybody can remember, fishermen have washed their nets in and prepared them and fixed them and got them ready for fishing because there's a hot spring out there someplace that comes up and makes the water warm year round. And this is the place where he called James and John. And there was this little tingle that went up and down my spine as I am recognizing and realizing that I'm standing in the place where the first disciples, the first humans, were called by the Messiah, called by the Christ, to not only follow him, but to become like him. 
Notice the context of the call. Peter and Andrew are in the middle of business. They're taking care of business. They're fishing. They're, they're, they're providing for their families. And yet, the call of Christ comes as a priority over their profession. And then he goes a little bit further and he comes to that cove where James and John the sons of Zebedee are and he gives them the same call. Not only is there a priority to the call of Jesus over their their work, but also their family. The text tells us, Mark tells us, that they left their father Zebedee. This verb, to follow, there's a a commentator by the name of Vessel that says, it's a really interesting verb. When, When this verb, to follow, is used in the text, it means you're being called to attach yourself to a person. And what Jesus is doing when he says, come and follow me, he's saying, I want you to attach yourself to me as a priority. I want you to personally surrender to this summons to come and to follow me in all of your life. It's the acceptance of his leadership. He's leader in whatever family I have or whatever profession, I'm attaching myself to him as the priority. And it's obedience to his teaching. And so one of the things that we have to figure out when we are called by the Messiah, we're not only called to become children of God, to be saved from our sins, to be forgiven, to receive that gift of the Holy Spirit, but we also have to decide whether or not if God calls us to a foreign country or decides to to call us to live in a cardboard box, is that the very thing we're going to do because we're disciples of Jesus of Nazareth? He takes control over all parts of our life. But not only does he call us, Jesus is also the king who heals. When Christ appears in the Gospels, things and people begin, begin to heal. And in this particular story, uh, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Now, one of the things we don't think about a lot, and, and rightfully so, is that we live at the mercy of diseases. Now, we might win some of the battles, but not the war when it comes to illness. And this miracle, like all the miracles that are recorded of Jesus in the Gospels, they're done in such a way that they startle us. That they startle us. They get our attention. His, uh, her getting better, his healing her, and her getting better, being healed, is not the show. The fact that she was healed was not the show. The show is the immediacy of it. In his presence, it's as if she had never been sick at all. So completely and immediately, uh, immediate was her healing that she got up and she began to wait on them, which meant that she went into the kitchen and she began to fix some some sandwiches for Jesus and and the company in her house. So complete was was this healing that no one said, well, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, maybe you ought to wait. You know, you've been sick. You might still be contagious. Maybe you shouldn't be handling the food. No, when she got up into the kitchen, she was so completely healed that everybody said, no, why don't you make it two sandwiches? This is what the Bible says about the Lord. Psalm 103. Praise God. My soul. Praise God. Why? Four things. Forget not all of his benefits... Number one, he who forgives all your sins. Number two, heals your what? Diseases. Number three, redeems your life from the pit. And number four, crowns you with love and compassion. 
One of the things, when you come into the presence of God, when you come into the presence of the King, the Messiah, is, is healing of all of the things that go wrong because sin, sin entered the world. And then number three, the king who defeats the enemy. You know, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the temptations of Jesus. If we believe in good angels and we believe in a great and a good and a holy God, why not believe in evil angels or demons? And on this particular occasion in Mark chapter 1, on this Sabbath, one of them shows up at a synagogue service. Now Jesus is there and it's church, first century Jewish style in the synagogue. And a demon shows up, not the usual place you would expect for a demon to appear, and he confronts Jesus. He says in verse 23, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's kind of a scary event in the life of that synagogue. There's this old joke about two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish who's swimming the, the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two younger fish keep swimming on, and then finally one looks at the other fish and says, What's water? The point of that joke is that sometimes the most important realities are the hardest to see. The reality that we don't see away from Christ is that we are all in this state. In the grip of evil, whether we see it or not. And if you don't agree with that assessment of where human beings are, then maybe you should start paying a little bit better attention to the 6 o'clock news. One of the greatest realities that humans have to grapple with, whether they are believers or not, is why is it that we cannot seem to defeat evil in the world? As hard as we try, as much as we, 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 uh, we put together laws, as much as we wish for it, you know, these kinds of things shouldn't happen around here anymore. As much as we would wish for it, we have not been able to defeat evil because we are enslaved to it. It is a power greater than us. And we will be enslaved to that power and to that evil until we are rescued. Yes, not on our own. We have to be rescued from it. And brothers and sisters, that's the water. That's the water. Humans need to be rescued not just from hell and not just from death. We need to be rescued from what we have become because of sin. That everything... Everything on the planet must be returned to its creator if there is to be any hope whatsoever entertained in the human heart that we are going to be able to overcome evil as we experience and know it and even author it in the world if there's going to be any hope at all in the world. And if there was ever an accurate commentary on the work of the king, it came from the mouth of the demon. You are the Holy One of God who has come to destroy us. And, you know, this was the kind of thing that John the disciple, the apostle of Jesus, probably saw lots of times. And even when he's in his 90s and he's at the end of his life, it's just one thing that he can't get out of his mind is seeing all of that healing and vanquishing of, of evil in human beings. 
And so he writes to that church in Asia Minor that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Well, this ends with this. He's the king who saves. I've talked to you before about uh, this, this TV show on PBS that Ellen and I try to watch every Sunday night when it's on. It's the show Poldark. How many of you watch it? It's a good, good show. And there's, uh, in this season, at the beginning of the season, Ross Poldark's friend, Dr. Dwight Ennis, is captured in battle by the French. He's taken to an island and imprisoned, and the prison is a horrible place of disease and torture and execution and grief, and there is no hope of escape. But Poldark loves his friend and wants to save him more than anything else, more than he loves his own life. And so he undertakes a mission to save him. And there's this, this crucial scene in the episode where Poldark and his entourage are able to make their way into the prison, surrounded by the enemy, and they're able to rescue Dwight Ennis, the doctor who is his friend. And in that scene... As Poldark begins to address his friend, his friend looks up, and it's like a dream. And he can scarcely believe his eyes that he is about to be rescued. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. We should just never allow those words to become trite and mechanical and wooden for us who hear them, knowing not only the great price that God had to pay for us to find that salvation, but also to know just how healed we have been of the evil within us and receiving the gift of God's Spirit. The words, good news, are the gospel. Christianity is, is not a philosophy. It's not six steps to a better way of thinking or a better way of, of, of living. The gospel means news. It is a unique, significant, history-altering event. It is, not, it, it is not a philosophy. It is history. And that historical event is that here comes this king from heaven who dies for his people to save them rather than the other way around. Peter says that he's the king who heals us by his wounds. And that's reality. That we're not saved by trying really hard to be a good person. We are not saved by achievements. We are saved by a king. We're going to sing a song right now. And our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And we would love to introduce you personally to this king and share with you the ways that the Bible teaches us that we access the grace of God through faith, uh, our sins being washed away, of turning our life around through repentance, of confessing that we are no longer in control of our own life because the King now has control of it. We confess that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords in our life. And if that describes you this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and all of us praise the King. Let's stand and sing. Lord, take my 